Section 8 of Marion Fay by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Volume 1, Chapter 8 Mr. Greenwood. Roden spent a pleasant evening with his friend and his friend's friend at Hendon Hall before their departure for the yacht during which not a word was said or an allusion made to Lady Frances. The day was Sunday, July 20th. The weather was very hot, and the two young men were delighted at the idea of getting away to the cool breezes of the northern seas. Vivian also was a clerk in the public service, but he was a clerk very far removed in his position from that filled by George Roden. He was attached to the Foreign Office, and was junior private secretary to Lord Persiflage, who was secretary of state at that moment. Lord Persiflage and our Marquis had married sisters. Vivian was distantly related to the two ladies, and hence the young men had become friends. As Lord Hampstead and Roden had been drawn together by similarity of opinion, so had Lord Hampstead and Vivian by the reverse. Hampstead could always produce Vivian in proof that he was not, in truth, opposed to his own order. Vivian was one who proclaimed his great liking for things as he found them. It was a thousand pities that anyone should be hungry, but for himself he liked truffles, ortolans, and all good things. If there was any injustice in the world, he was not responsible. And if there was any injustice, he had not been the gainer, seeing that he was a younger brother. To him all Hampstead's theories were sheer rhodomontade. There was the world, and men had got to live in it as best they might. He intended to do so, and as he liked yachting and liked grouse shooting, he was very glad to have arranged with Lord Persiflage and his brother, private secretary, so as to be able to get out of town for the next two months. He was member of half a dozen clubs, could always go to his brother's country house if nothing more inviting offered, dined out in London four or five days a week, and considered himself a thoroughly useful member of society in that he condescended to write letters for Lord Persiflage. He was pleasant in his manners to all men, and had accommodated himself to Roden as well as though Roden's office had also been in Downing Street instead of in the city. Yes, Grouse, he said after dinner, if anything better can be invented, I'll go and do it. American bears are a myth. You may get one in three years, and, as far as I can hear, very poor fun it is when you get it. Lions are a grind. Elephants are as big as a haystack. Pig-sticking may be very well, but you've got to go to India, and if you're a poor foreign office clerk, you haven't got either the time or the money. You speak as though killing something were a necessity, said Roden. So it is, unless somebody can invent something better. I hate races, where a fellow has nothing to do with himself when he can't afford to bet. I don't mean to take to cards for the next ten years. 
I have never been up in a balloon. Spooning is good fun, but it comes to an end so soon, one way or another. Girls are so wide awake that they won't spoon for nothing. Upon the whole, I don't see what a fellow is to do unless he kills something. You won't have much to kill on board the yacht, said Roden. Fishing without end in Ireland and Norway. I knew a man who killed a ton of trout out of an Iceland lake. He had to pack himself up very closely in tight-fitting nets, or the midges would have eaten him. And the skin came off his nose and ears from the sun. But he liked that rather than not, and he killed his ton of trout. Who weighed them? asked Hampstead. How well you may know a utilitarian by the nature of his questions. If a man doesn't kill his ton all out, he can say he did, which is the next best thing to it. Are you taking close packing nets with you? Roden asked. Well, no, Hampstead would be too impatient, and the free trader isn't big enough to bring away the fish. But I don't mind betting a sovereign that I kill something every day I'm out, barring Sundays. Not a word was said about Lady Frances, although there were a few moments in which Roden and Lord Hampstead were alone together. Roden had made up his mind that he would ask no questions unless the subject were mentioned, and did not even allude to any of the family. But he learnt in the course of the evening that the Marquis had come back from Germany with the intention of attending to his parliamentary duties during the remainder of the session. He's going to turn us all out, said Vivian, on the county franchise, I suppose. I'm afraid my father is not so keen about county franchise as he used to be, though I hope he will be one of the few to support it in the House of Lords, if the House of Commons ever dares to pass it. In this way Roden learnt that the Marquis, who had carried his daughter off to Saxony as soon as he had heard of the engagement, had left his charge there and had returned to London. As he went home that evening he thought that it would be his duty to go to Lord Kingsbury and tell him, as from himself, that which the father had only yet learnt from his daughter or from his wife. He was aware that it behoves a man, when he has won a girl's heart, to go to the father and ask permission to carry on his suit. This duty he thought he was bound to perform, even though the father were a person so high and mighty as the Marquis of Kingsbury. Hitherto any such going was out of his power. The Marquis had heard the tidings, and had immediately caught his daughter up and carried her off to Germany. It would have been possible to write to him, but Roden had thought that not in such a way should such a duty be performed. Now the Marquis had come back to London, and though the operation would be painful, the duty seemed to be paramount. On the next day he informed Mr. Jerningham that private business of importance would take him to the West End, and asked leave to absent himself. The morning had been passed in the room at the post office with more than ordinary silence. Crocker had been collecting himself for an attack, but his courage had hitherto failed him. 
As Roden put on his hat and opened the door, he fired a parting shot. "'Remember me kindly to Lord Hampstead,' he said, "'and tell him I hope he enjoyed his cutlets.' Roden stood for a moment with the door in his hand, thinking that he would turn upon the man and rebuke his insolence, but at last determined that it would be best to hold his peace. He went direct to Park Lane, thinking that he would probably find the Marquis before he left the house after his luncheon. He had never been before at the town mansion, which was known as Kingsbury House, and which possessed all the appanages of grandeur which can be given to a London residence. As he knocked at the door, he acknowledged that he was struck with a certain awe of which he was ashamed. Having said so much to the daughter, surely he should not be afraid to speak to the father. But he felt that he could have managed the matter much better had he contrived to have the interview at Hendon Hall, which was much less grand than Kingsbury House. Almost as soon as he knocked, the door was opened, and he found himself with a powdered footman as well as the porter. The powdered footman did not know whether or no my lord was at home. He would inquire. Would the gentleman sit down for a minute or two? The gentleman did sit down and waited for what seemed to him to be more than half an hour. The house must be very large indeed if it took the man all this time to look for the Marquis. He was beginning to think in what way he might best make his escape, as a man is apt to think when delays of this kind prove too long for the patience. But the man returned, and with a cold, unfriendly air bade Roden to follow him. Roden was quite sure that some evil was to happen, so cold and unfriendly was the manner of the man, but still he followed, having now no means of escape. The man had not said that the Marquis would see him, had not even given any intimation that the Marquis was in the house. It was as though he were being led away to execution for having had the impertinence to knock at the door. But still he followed. He was taken along a passage on the ground floor, past numerous doors, to what must have been the back of the house, and there was shown into a somewhat dingy room that was altogether surrounded by books. There he saw an old gentleman, but the old gentleman was not the Marquis of Kingsbury. "'Eh, eh, oh,' said the old gentleman. "'You, I believe, are Mr. George Roden.' "'That is my name. I had hoped to see Lord Kingsbury.' "'Lord Kingsbury has thought it best for all parties that, that, that I should see you. That is, if anybody should see you. My name is Greenwood, the Reverend Mr. Greenwood. I am his lordship's chaplain, and if I may presume to say so, his most attached and sincere friend. I have had the honor of a very long connection with his lordship, and have therefore been entrusted by him with this, this, this delicate duty, I had perhaps better call it. Mr. Greenwood was a stout, short man, about sixty years of age, with pendant cheeks and pendant chin, with a few gray hairs brushed carefully over his head, with a good forehead and well-fashioned nose, who must have been good-looking when he was young, 
but that he was too short for manly beauty. Now, in advanced years, he had become lethargic and averse to exercise, and having grown to be corpulent, he had lost whatever he had possessed in height by becoming broad and looked to be a fat dwarf. Still, there would have been something pleasant in his face, but for an air of doubt and hesitation, which seemed almost to betray cowardice. At the present moment he stood in the middle of the room, rubbing his hands together, and almost trembling as he explained to George Roden who he was. "'I had certainly wished to see his lordship himself,' said Roden. "'The Marquis has thought it better not, and I must say that I agree with the Marquis.' At the moment Roden hardly knew how to go on with the business in hand. "'I believe I am justified in assuring you that anything you would have said to the Marquis you may say to me. "'Am I to understand that Lord Kingsbury refuses to see me?' "'Well, yes. At the present crisis he does refuse. What can be gained?' Roden did not as yet know how far he might go in mentioning the name of Lady Frances to the clergyman, but was unwilling to leave the house without some reference to the business he had in hand. He was peculiarly averse to leaving an impression that he was afraid to mention what he had done. "'I had to speak to his lordship about his daughter,' he said. "'I know, I know, Lady Frances.' I have known Lady Frances since she was a little child. I have the warmest regard for Lady Frances, as I have also for Lord Hampstead, and for the Marchioness, and for her three dear little boys, Lord Frederick, Lord Augustus, and Lord Gregory. I feel a natural hesitation in calling them my friends, because I think that the difference in rank and station, which it has pleased the Lord to institute, should be maintained with all their privileges and all their honors. Though I have agreed with the Marquis through a long life in those political tenets, by propagating which he has been ever anxious to improve the condition of the lower classes, I am not and have not been on that account the less anxious to uphold, by any small means which may be in my power, those variations in rank to which I think in conjunction with the Protestant religion, the welfare and high standing of this country are mainly to be attributed. Having these feelings at my heart very strongly, I do not wish particularly on such an occasion as this to seem by even a chance word to diminish the respect which I feel to be due to all the members of a family of a rank so exalted as that which belongs to the family of the Marquis of Kingsbury. Putting that aside for a moment, I perhaps may venture on this occasion, having had confided to me a task so delicate as the present, to declare my warm friendship for all who bear the honored name of Trafford. I am at any rate entitled to declare myself so far a friend that you may say anything on this delicate subject which you would think it necessary to say to the young lady's father. However inexpedient it may be that anything should be said at all, I have been instructed by his lordship to hear and to reply. 
George Roden, while he was listening to this tedious sermon, was standing opposite to the preacher with his hat in his hand, having not yet had accorded to him the favor of a seat. During the preaching of the sermon, the preacher had never ceased to shiver and shake, rubbing one fat little clammy hand slowly over the other, and apparently afraid to look his audience in the face. It seemed to Roden as though the words must have been learnt by heart, they came so glibly, with so much of unction and of earnestness, and were in their glibness so strongly opposed to the man's manner. There had not been a single word spoken that had not been offensive to Roden. It seemed to him that they had been chosen because of their offense, and all those long-winded sentences about rank in which Mr. Greenwood had expressed his own humility and insufficiency for the position of friend in a family so exalted, he had manifestly intended to signify the much more manifest insufficiency of his hearer to fill a place of higher honor even than that of friend. Had the words come at the spur of the moment, the man must, thought Roden, have great gifts for extempore preaching. He had thought the time in the hall to be long, but it had not been much for the communication of the Earl's wishes, and then for the preparation of all these words. It was necessary, however, that he must make his reply without any preparation. I have come, he said, to tell Lord Kingsbury that I am in love with his daughter. At hearing this, the fat little man held up both his hands in amazement, although he had already made it clear that he was acquainted with all the circumstances. And I should have been bound to add, said Roden, plucking up all his courage, that the young lady is also in love with me. Oh, oh, oh! The hands went higher and higher as these interjections were made. Why not? Is not the truth the best? A young man, Mr. Roden, should never boast of a young lady's affection, particularly of such a young lady, particularly when I cannot admit that it exists, particularly not in her father's house. Nobody should boast of anything, Mr. Greenwood. I speak of a fact which it is necessary that a father should know. If the lady denies the assertion, I have done. It is a matter in which delicacy demands that no question shall be put to the young lady. After what has occurred, it is out of the question that your name should even be mentioned in the young lady's hearing. Why, I mean to marry her. Mean? This word was shouted in the extremity of Mr. Greenwood's horror. Mr. Roden! It is my duty to assure you that under no circumstances can you ever see the young lady again. Who says so? The Marquis says so, and the Marchioness, and her little brothers, who, with their growing strength, will protect her from all harm. I hope their growing strength may not be wanted for any such purpose. Should it be so, I am sure they will not be deficient as brothers. At present there could not be much for them to do. Mr. Greenwood shook his head. He was still standing, 
not having moved an inch from the position in which he had been placed when the door was opened. I can understand, Mr. Greenwood, that any further conversation on the subject between you and me must be quite useless. Quite useless, said Mr. Greenwood. But it has been necessary for my honor and for my purpose that Lord Kingsbury should know that I had come to ask him for his daughter's hand. I had not dared to expect that he would accept my proposal graciously. No, no, hardly that, Mr. Roden. But it was necessary that he should know my purpose from myself. He will now, no doubt, do so. He is, as I understand you, aware of my presence in the house. Mr. Greenwood shook his head as though he would say that this was a matter which he could not any longer discuss. If not, I must trouble his lordship with a letter. That will be unnecessary. He does know. Mr. Greenwood nodded his head. And you will tell him why I have come? The Marquis shall be made acquainted with the nature of the interview. Roden then turned to leave the room, but was obliged to ask Mr. Greenwood to show him the way along the passages. This the clergyman did, tripping on ahead upon his toes, till he had delivered the intruder over to the hall porter. Having done so, he made, as it were, a valedictory bow, and tripped back to his own apartment. Then Roden left the house, thinking as he did so that there was certainly much to be done before he could be received there as a welcome son-in-law. As he made his way back to Holloway, he again considered it all. How could there be an end to this, an end that would be satisfactory to himself and to the girl that he loved? The aversion expressed to him through the person of Mr. Greenwood was natural. It could not but be expected that such a one as the Marquis of Kingsbury should endeavor to keep his daughter out of the hands of such a suitor. If it were only in regard to money, would it not be necessary for him to do so? Every possible barricade would be built up in his way. There would be nothing on his side except the girl's love for himself. Was it to be expected that her love would have power to conquer such obstacles as these? And if it were, would she obtain her own happiness by clinging to it? He was aware that, in his present position, no duty was so incumbent on him as that of looking to the happiness of the woman whom he wished to make his wife. End of Section 8 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina